Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give You thanks and glory and uh, for all that You have given to us. Especially, Lord, we thank You now uh, for Your Word. We thank You also for an amazing breakfast and a wonderful team. Uh, we thank You for this community of faith, for this fellowship. And we thank You, Lord, that You have promised not only to give us Your Word, but with that to give us Your Spirit. And so we pray that Your Spirit and Your Word would speak uh, to us today. Uh, that we might know You, love You, and serve You uh, all the days of our lives. Uh, in Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, friends. So we are in week three of the uh, Essential 100. And um, we are going to go through two or three passages uh, a week for a long time. And um, I've got handouts for next week, so don't let me forget to uh, pass these out. Uh, are these helpful? Are you finding these helpful? Are you able to stick with it? Uh, we've, we've got one more book, and, and, and we can order more. This is over here on the table. It's, um, the last book is $40. Uh, so, um, it's supply and demand. That's right. No, $10 uh, if you got it now or later. Um, all right, so we have established, if you've been with us, uh, or if you haven't been with us, we've established the problem. We've been through Genesis 1 through 11, and we have established the problem. Uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis established the question that the next 1178 chapters of the Bible uh, seek to answer, uh, which is to say all of them. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 state that God created all that there is out of nothing. Uh, you can't imagine nothing. Because if you close your eyes and try to imagine nothing, there's something there that is representative of nothing. Uh, if it's a black screen, that's something. So, um, so it's hard to imagine. But hum humanity, uh, God said, let there be, and there was. God created all that there is. And humanity is the crown of that creation, created in the image of God to have a unique relationship and re unique union with God. But that ideal intention has been profoundly broken, is what those first 11 chapters tell us. Not simply do we see this in the relationship between God and humanity, but also uh, we see it in the hopelessly destructive way that humanity, both individually and corporately, uh, tries to assert itself as divine. Now, I don't mean, when I say that, I don't mean that humanity tries to float up into the air necessarily, but to say, I am in charge of my life. Uh, I am, we see that in uh, Cain, we didn't read it in this class, but Cain's uh, murder of Abel, or second generation humanity, uh, we see it, uh, I mean, that's really the curse of the garden. From, from uh, That's what Eve and Adam said, I, I know what's better for me than God does. And then we see before Noah that, um, that humanity had kind of gone off the rails, we see after Noah, that Noah, the first thing he does when he gets uh, off the boat is he gets drunk. You know, and I just think that's a, just a reminder uh, for us that, that God wiped out humanity, but it didn't, sin is still brought. Isn't it amazing? I think it's actually really gracious, really amazing that God, if God had wiped out all of humanity, he could have just started over. No one would have known who's going to, you know, no, who's going to complain to him after that. Uh, but he didn't do that. Um, but He is a holy God, and He judges sin as a function of His holiness, not as a function of insecurity. When you and I get angry at something, we are insecure and, and that sort of thing, and that's, um, 
It's inconvenient to us, but God is just holy. And, and that's, I mean, that still can be a hard pill to swallow. I mean, I'm not saying that, oh, so to don't, you don't have a problem with God's uh, judgment. But when we look at God's judgment in the Old Testament, we know that God is judging as a function of His holiness, not as a function of how you and I would pass judgment uh, on someone else. He's not up there stamping His foot because He didn't get His way. So, um, but we, all, so we see God as uh, judging sin, but we also see Him as gracious. We really do. He makes clothes for Adam and Eve. I mean, that, he, he's the one who does that. He's actually gracious to Cain after the murder of Abel. Uh, he could have um, wiped humanity out, but he preserved Noah and actually gave uh, him the means by which to escape his judgment, which he said is actually a forerunner of the cross itself. Sin is not a list of things that we are to avoid doing. Those things happen because of sin. But sin is ultimately the innate propensity of fallen humanity to assert itself as divine. Or you might say to serve itself rather than to serve God. So, the question then is, established in the first 11 chapters, how can unholy humanity have a relationship with a holy God. Chapters 1-11 through suggest that humanity is not going to be much help in solving this problem. So, we turn to Genesis chapter 12 and we see what God begins to do uh, about this problem. God is the offended party here. We have wandered from Him. He has not wandered from us. And so, because He is the offended party, He's the one that can initiate healing. Think about that. As one who more than likely has been offended, have been the offended party, and also more than likely has been the offending party, uh, healing is more dependent upon forgiveness than it is upon apology. Say that again. Healing is more dependent upon forgiveness than it is upon apology. When I have offended someone, I can apologize. If they don't forgive me, we're not healed. But if someone offends me and I forgive them, then my relationship with them is open. And once they're ready, we we can come back. So, we see that right there. So the second half of chapter 11, after uh, the Tower of Babel, I can't tell you how many people told me, came up to me this week and said, it's Babel, not Babel. Um, It doesn't give a pronunciation. I'm sorry. Um, Babel, Babel, tomato, tomato. Uh, Second half of chapter 11 is the genealogy of Noah's son, Shem, which is about as interesting as watching uh, toast, toast. Uh, But um, nevertheless, actually when you see a genealogy, in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, uh, what, that's like an um, alert that something new is about to happen. That's just, it would have been much more efficient if they just said something new is about to happen. But uh, we're turning to a next chapter. But that was just sort of their marker, their divider. We would just put a piece of blue paper between the white paper, but they, they put genealogies between the narratives. And, um, but anyway, so we see... Uh, at the end of that chapter 11, we see the narrative of the genealogy of his son Shem and his, I didn't count the generations, but all the way down to a man named Terah, 
who has a son named Abram. And that's where the genealogy essentially ends. Except, actually, I guess I could go back and look at it, I guess, but Abram's brother has a son named Lot. All right. So let me read Genesis 12, 1 through 9. You may have already read this. I hope you have, actually. It'd be great if you were um, bringing your Bible. It'd be great, or pulling it up on your phone. It'd also be great if you uh, read these passages ahead, and you can do that if you have the, um, the uh, book, uh, and or you can do that if you have uh, this sheet. Uh, or you can just you know, email me, and I'll tell you what it is. But uh, that, this is for next week, and, you, and you'll know what it is. And, and incidentally, I know next week's Labor Day. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. All right. Hope you'll be here. Genesis. What? No pressure. Yeah. So I'm keeping, I'll, I'll be taking, uh, taking roll next week. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's a pretty remarkable thing to say to somebody, especially somebody hanging out. Uh, I mean, just he's kind of a moon worshiper, right? So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Remember, that's his nephew. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land at the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negeb. So, I think it is remarkable that to solve this problem, how can a holy God have a relationship with unholy people, that God doesn't construct systems. He initiates a relationship. I think that's significant. It tells us something else about God. That's something else. When, when we ask the question, how, I look at the Old Testament God and I look at the New Testament God and the Old Testament God seems so angry. Like You need to look at the whole picture. We've already seen God be really gracious, and here He's not uh, constructing systems or establishing laws or, or spawning police officers to make sure everybody stays in line. He is uh, initiating a relationship uh, with Abram. Now, we are not told uh, really any context other than the genealogy uh, in chapter 11, no context of why God picked Abram. Why, uh, why didn't he let it go a few more generations? Why did he wait that long? We don't know anything about Abram other than that he said yes. So God just chose him. Why did he choose him? He chose him because he chose him. Why did he choose you or me? Because he chose us because he chose us. Why does he love you? He loves you because he loves you. I don't know. 
I think it's amazing right here. I mean, the doctrine of election. Ooh, we don't like talking about that. We're Episcopalians. But, um, but it is a doctrine of comfort. Because what if it was on you? What if God picked you because you're good looking and then you get older and you're not as good looking as you used to be? Is God going to st- stay with you? You know, what if, he ear- what if you earned it? But then you messed that up. If God chooses you because He chooses you, it's on Him for His reasons that He might even keep to Himself, then, that, then it's up to Him. He's going to be the one. That, and He's actually promised He's never going to leave you or forsake you. So that's actually a, real, a, a comfort. Why did He pick Abram? Because He did. I don't know. And He says, go to the land that I'm going to show you. And Abram says, sure. I mean, that is unbelievable to me. He doesn't say, hey, I've picked out this great property. Let me show you some pictures. If you want to send out a scouting party to see if it's okay with you. He just says, you live... You, know, you remember in the, um, in the Gulf War where the, uh, the, that artery of, of um, transportation was going up from the Gulf up to Baghdad? This is, is right in the middle of that artery. Like it's just it's right where he was. Ur of the Chaldeans. And, and, and he just says, go to the land of Canaan. It's... Eh. Eight, 800 miles west of here, just um, start walking. <laughs> and so, and Abram is a guy who has some stuff. And it says, remember, he says, and all the people he had acquired with him, he has, he has servants, slaves, however you want to look at that. And, and he's got livestock, and he, they just they get going. And it's not straight across because that was a desert. They had to kind of arc over to the north. Amazing faith. It must have been very compelling. It, I mean, I'm, God has never spoken to me that way, and probably not to you either. I mean, He speaks to me, but not like, hey, get up and go. <laughs> I'll work out the details later. Just trust me. Um, so Abram is 75 years old. He says, I'm going to make of you, you, of you a great nation. He doesn't have any kids. His father, Terah, was 70 when he fathered Abram. So it's... It's not that, in that culture, in that time, in that I don't, vit- season of vitality of humanity, whatever, he, it was not that, cr- wouldn't have been that crazy of an idea. But he didn't have a kid for another 25 years, so it, it got to be a little crazy. But the plan begins with a promise. So it's begin- he initiates the relationship, and then a series of promises that God gives to him. He says, he says go, so it's, there's an imperative, but this is what he says. I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your great name. Your, your, I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever dishonors you, I will curse. That's, I mean, these are strong words, because he is God's chosen one. He is the. This is the headwaters of God's chosen family, the people of God. But here's the one. In you. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. We've already seen before Noah that all the families of the earth had wandered dramatically from the Lord, right? But in you, like Abram, my chosen one, I'm going to reverse the curse. You usually talk about that in terms of football. I was a South Carolina fan for years and years and years. We wanted to reverse the curse. Um, I'm not sure it ever happened. But, uh, but God was going to reverse the curse in you, Abram. He didn't tell him how. He didn't say, I'm going to put a, one of your uh, ancestors, um, I mean, uh, one of your 
offspring uh, down the line, your uh, descendants on a, on a cross. He doesn't say that. He just says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. Let me ask you this. What does the word blessed mean? How do you understand blessing? Anybody? God's favor. God's favor is actually a wonderful, excellent definition. Anybody want to add to that? Coffee? Did someone say coffee? Blessing? Yes. Um, yes, God's love. Um, you know, I don't know, for all of you who are on social media, and a lot of you are, um, I know, there's a hashtag blessed, hashtag blessed. Oh, I'm so hashtag blessed. And what we typically mean is I'm hashtag nebulously grateful, but I don't really have anybody I'm being grateful to. I mean, it's just, maybe we do. Maybe we mean, and I don't mean to be overly cynical about that, but, but lots of people say that they're blessed. It just means their life's going well. Maybe they mean God gave them what, what He gave them. But it's typically hashtag I like this part of my life and I'm grateful, but not to anyone in particular. Which is actually probably more than 140 characters. But, um, so... But blessed means that Abram is the recipient of specific divine favor and guidance. That's what it means to be blessed. He's given him his specific favor and his, and his guidance. Now, if you're blessed, how have, you, have you gotten guidance? Well, yeah, you have. Have you gotten favor? Jesus says so. You are declared righteous. Doesn't mean things aren't going to go bad for you. But it does mean that God's hand is upon you. And, and I, I think I've told this story before. When I was in seminary, uh, and I may have told it even recently, but when I was in seminary, we, um, everybody got pregnant. I mean, um, all, all, well, not everybody, half of them, I guess. And, uh, but, um, but it was, uh, so we were, Amy was pregnant with uh, Caroline, and a friend of ours was uh, pregnant um, with, with their child, their first child, and their child was um, being developed, it was developing in the womb without a skull. And that child, I don't remember the name of that condition, but that child was going to be, uh, was not going to live. Uh, they, they could carry the term because it was safe in the womb, but it was not going to live um, after it was born. And he was sitting next to me and somebody said, hey Joe, how's the, how's the pregnancy going? And I said, oh man, we're so blessed, everything's going great. And I just, I mean, I wanted to crawl under the table, like I just thought, I mean, it really made me wonder, is, this, is Scott less blessed? Is Sarah less blessed? Because their child is not going to make it. No, God has put His hand upon them. You wouldn't believe how God used that child in the life of, um, of the seminary and, and those people. And He's a priest in New York, and they're doing, they're doing great. But, um, but it was hard, but they were, they were blessed. But it, it, I, I don't like to think of blessing in terms of happiness. I like I, happiness is a blessing, but it's certainly not the only blessing. But God's presence with you through the course of your life is is the blessing. Anyway, you can chew on that a little bit uh, if you want to. I think that here um, it, it's shaded even a little different than the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit; um, they will uh, receive the kingdom of of God. Of God. They will inherit the earth. Um, God's hand is a is upon Abram to convey God's plan to fruition. So that is, that is the blessing. And through Abram's line, all the families of the earth will receive that same favor and the hand of God upon them. And how is it 
that through Abram's line all families of the earth have been blessed it is because God's salvation is available to all because Abram's descendant, Jesus, uh, went to the cross. Uh, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him will not perish but will have everlasting life. All families, whoever. Jesus is the fulfillment of this very promise. This is verse 4 in the specific narrative of God's plan of salvation. It's pretty amazing to me. All in him, all families of the earth will be blessed. And he goes to the land of Canaan, which of course is another name for Israel. But Canaan was also a descendant. of the grandson of Noah from Noah's son Ham. And so when you hear the land of Canaan, you can know that Canaan was Noah's grandson. That's probably that's where he set up shop. And um, that was a, it was a fruitful land and um, many generations before Abram. And he says, to your offspring, I will give this land people... Um, and then, I mean, there, there are people here. There, um, people are even here. Oh, I don't even know what I meant by that. But what I mean is that um, before, the, before he was there, he, was gonna, he said, this is, all these people I've told you you're going to have. And he, remember, he's just walked 800 miles or however far it is. And all the people I've told you you're going to have but you don't have yet, they're going to get this land. This is going to be your family's land. And... I mean, you see about how, like, through the course of the Old Testament, you see that the people identify with the land in such a profound way. When I, um, my first church was on John's Island, and, um, which is right outside of Charleston, and the people there had been there for generations. And it was, there's a line in the, in the a musical Oklahoma that says, um, we belong to the land. I mean, it was not just this is our property, but actually... We belong to the land as much as the land belongs to us. It was they, they identified, and you may have there may be some of that in your family as well, and that certainly is they were the they were God's people, and the and the the principal marker and, and um, symbol to them that they were God's people is that they had been given God's land, um, and and He says to Abram, "This is where your people will be," and um, and twice. We see Abram build an altar to the Lord. Right here, on the first page of the story, there's worship. And I love that. That Abram doesn't just go about being busy for the Lord. He worships the Lord. He builds an altar to the Lord. And surely there was, he doesn't say it, but surely there was sacrifice involved. He gave of his own to honor uh, the, God, the God who had brought him there. And so before they were a people, there was an establishment of the proper order of things. Worship comes First, God is in charge. There was offering uh, and there was praise. So this is the calling of Abram. What does it mean to be called? To be called by God? Is everybody called by God? Or just some of us? So I think the answer to that, probably as you would expect, is every Christian experiences a call to faith. You've made a decision almost surely at some point in your life that faith would be your own if you were brought up in the faith that you it was no longer your parents faith but it was your faith or if you weren't brought up in faith that you decided that I was going to um, come to this or maybe you were brought in faith but you left it and you came back there was a calling you made a decision but in retrospect I can look back and see that actually God was calling me into it I, almost certainly I can look back on that um, that order of events and realize that it was orchestrated by God that I wouldn't have put my faith in Him if He had not first called me. 
I wouldn't have called out to Him if He hadn't called me. And I may not have had the eyes to see it then, but now I see that God has called me. I've, I've said before, I, I went down at a um, John Guest crusade. John Guest was an Episcopal evangelist, sort of a JV Billy Graham. And I went down, uh, he, he called people. He said, he said if, uh, if you've made, you know, never made a public profession of faith, why don't you come down uh, front? And I went, and I, and I made the choice to go down. And I look back on that, and it was like, there was no choice to stay. Right? I mean, I, I, that, that's just... I look back on it, there, there was no fork in the road. It felt like that then. But in retrospect, again, that's, that's very comforting to me. That's, that's, not a, that's not a God, you know, puppet master kind of deal. I mean, that's just God being very gracious to someone who was struggling. So, it's a very loving feeling, too. It's a very loving feeling, yes. It was scary as heck then, but yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, this overwhelming love pulling. I mean, there's other types of calling, too. I mean, ordination is a calling, and people have often asked me that story, and I think I've told that story uh, before, and actually it's a, it's a series of stories, as you might imagine. Uh, but, but ordination is not the only calling. I mean, if you're a middle school teacher, you, you're called. You know, like that's... Um, um, but, but, you know, you might be called... You know, you just look at your, at your gifts, you know, look at look at your gifts. Look at um, look at what you're excited about, and see where the world's need is, and what is the intersection. It, maybe it's not maybe it's not even that you're good at. You just have the available time, the intersection of the world's need and what you have to offer. That's your calling. It doesn't have to be mystical. It can be mystical, and that's really cool. But if you hadn't had a mystical experience, get going, man. It does, I mean, and listen, that's that's a fruit of grace, not a, not a precursor to it in the context of God's calling on your life and the grace that you've received. So, um, so yet you are called. Like Abram. This is a, a foretaste uh, for all of us. I want you to spend some time this week thinking about your calling. Right? Ask God, uh, how were you called to faith in Christ? Uh, how were you called to this church? Uh, what might God be calling you to in the next season of your life, starting today. Spend some time thinking about that. Now, I love that E100, this book, that it includes the second half of chapter 12 in this reading as well, uh, because Abram proves that there was nothing special about him that elicited God's uh, choice. He leaves the land that God gave him in search of food. You would think, I've come this far. God said He was going to provide. I mean, there's going to be... God's going to provide. But he heads off to Egypt when, in a, when food gets scarce. And his beautiful Sarai, um, he has her lie to Pharaoh about their marriage and say that they're brother and sister. <clears throat> kind of weird, man. That's just creepy. And, um, and Pharaoh finds out about it because God starts sending plagues or something. And, and um, he says, what are you doing? Why didn't you tell me it was your wife? And I brought her into my house. That's He's like, I just thought you, I thought you would, um, uh, would kill me. And so he's fearful. You know, he, he's, he's acting uh, out of fa- outside of faith. Um, the, pressure's off, the pressure's off because God chooses us, not because we deserve it. All right. Any question about Abram, the first little bit? Comments? But 
Yeah, you know, real quick. struck me when I read this. Um, when Abram took Lot with him, was Lot already, because of custom, and his father was dead, mm-hmm. was he already considered a part of Abraham's direct family? Because God told him to leave, to take his immediate family and leave all the rest of his relatives behind. Well, that's true, but he also, uh, Abram uh, calls out to God in chapter 15, and he says, uh, my my ancestor, my um, heir is Eliezer of Damascus. So Lot wasn't his heir, and I don't really understand the. I don't know the whole. He was his nephew. He, was his nephew. he probably was good with the, you know, saw or something. I, I don't know why exactly he he brought him, but um, it, it doesn't say why he brought Lot. But Lot gets him into trouble a little bit. It's really interesting, I think. Um, so why it did I, the answer to that is I'm not sure why he brought Lot because he had servants already. Already kind of uh, putting his own inflection on what God told him to do, right? since God said, "Take oh. your family." Well, that's possible because Lot really is not much of a blessing. Uh, he's kind of he's kind of the he's kind of the kid with the uh, well, I don't want to say that, but um, the uh, you might have one of those, but um, but it, you know, yeah. So so Lot gets into all sorts of trouble. That's thirteen and fourteen. And, and it's really interesting, and I didn't catch this. This is a commentator that I read. Uh, but he says, I mean, Abram goes after him. He, he stands up to these, uh, the kings of, of the, local, the local kings, the, uh, and he defeats them. He says, Abram proves himself to be a great warrior. And then, so we get to chapter 15. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And the first word that we hear from God here is, fear not. Well, he's a pretty fearless dude. He's just gone to battle against kings and rescued his knucklehead nephew, Lot. What is he afraid of? Well, probably now we're several years after he's been promised uh, uh, that his, his lineage uh, is going to be so great. And he still doesn't have a kid. You ever see that? Um, my cousin Vinny and Marissa Torre, my body clock is ticking like this, you know, like I just, I think, I think Sarah must have been like that. Thank you. Thank you. Please don't tell anybody that I did that. Um, but what we get is a, is a covenant. We get not just a promise, but, but a, a covenant. And this is, and we have in this chapter two of the most important uh, verses, I, I think. Uh, so he says, "Fear not, I am your shield." Uh, your your um, translation might say, "I'm your benefactor." Like I am for you, I am your protector, uh, Abram, and your reward is going to be very great. But Abram says, "Okay, but you told me that um, that I was going to be have all these ancestors, these descendants, and." And, uh, and I continued childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household um, uh, will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir. So he's one of his servants, right? It, this man will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. 
Now that is one of St. Paul, Paul's uh, proof text verses. If you read Romans chapter 4, and I hope you will, uh, um, Paul goes back to this verse and says, right here, it was Abram's faith in God. He believed in Him. And it was, his belief was credited to him as righteous. Again, we see the character of God as imputing righteousness to someone by faith. Not by their actions. God has not given what Paul takes great pains to say is that God has not given the law yet. So how could he be righteous? He's righteous because God said he was right. He declared him righteous. In the accounting of his righteousness, it was reckoned to him. Now, where I'm from, when we say, I reckon, that doesn't mean, we, you know, that's something else. But, but the, he was, uh, it was counted, credited uh, to him as righteousness. And that is the gospel for you and me. He looks at you and me and looks at Christ, and Christ's righteousness is credited to you or reckoned to you as righteous. And you are righteous. You look at your life and say, no, I'm not. And you're right. Martin Luther, my good buddy, says, Simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified and yet a sinner. 100% justified, 100% a sinner. You're, we live between the already and the not yet. What is already true about us is that we are justified. What is not yet true about us is that we are just. You're not quite righteous. Now, hopefully, over the course of your life walking with Christ, you can look back and say, I'm a little better than I was. Glory be to God. You're not going to take any credit for that, but you see the Holy Spirit working in you. But actually, also, one of the, one of the things about walking with Christ is now you're far more aware of your sin than when you were when you were <laughs> steeped in sin. I mean, when I came to Christ, I thought, well, I'm a sinner. I'm, a sinner. I'm not, that, not that bad. I look back and I think, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't know. But now I do. Alright. So what was Abraham feeling? What was Abraham feeling in that moment? Doubt? Disappointment? Worry? Tempted to unbelief? You've been there, right? Right? It can be a dark place. But it can also be um, a faith-building place. The psalmist cries out, cries out, How long will you stay silent, O Lord? We know those desert times. It's a, they're hard seasons. But we have something that Abram didn't have, right? We have the Scriptures. Abram didn't have... Something that he could look on and see the testimony of God's faithfulness to His people. The people crying out to God through the desert of their life and seeing God poured out uh, His blessings, but maybe not for 25 years later. We, didn't, we hadn't seen those... He hadn't seen those sorts of things, but we've got this. And I don't know you could, I don't know where you'll open it up to when you read. You can look at Old Testament, you can look at New Testament. But the Scriptures are an immeasurable source of comfort for us. Uh, when we are in seasons of doubt. And to answer the doubt, God speaks through His Word, but he, to answer Abram's doubt, he didn't have the Scripture, so He speaks. God speaks. He's a speaking God. Um, fear not. 
Again, what is he afraid of? He's not afraid of kings. He can go into battle as a 80-year-old man now. That's awesome. But but um, he's afraid that God's not going to be good to his word. And he believed God and credited him as righteousness. Um, so, again, I just made this point. Um, Paul uses this verse to say that this is how God has always operated the Old Testament and the New Testament. That God, that righteousness comes by faith and not by works. Again, Old Testament God, New Testament God, same God. And um, he belabors the point saying it was before Abraham was circumcised that he was counted as righteous. And that circumcision just acted as the outward invisible sign. It's essentially a sacrament. And our sacrament that follows in the line of circumcision is what? Baptism. That's right. But the baptism doesn't save you. It's just an outward invisible sign. Okay. So, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. It echoes, well, prefigures what we'll often hear. From, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. But he says to Abram, I brought you out of, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And as proof, let's cut a covenant. And I don't have much, too much time left, but I want to tell you, a covenant is a binding agreement. And to break a covenant is incredibly painful. If you've been through divorce, you know that cutting a, uh, breaking a covenant is, involves a lot of pain. The way they did that, this is um, uh, a lord of the land would make a covenant with a, with a um, the servant. And they would say, and they would cut a covenant. So they would take these animals, they would cut them in half. They would lay them on the side, and the lesser party would walk through there, essentially saying, if I don't uphold my end of the covenant, then this is what's going to happen to me. It's gross, man. That's, it's really ugly. And, and, and yeah, that's, I mean, that was just their custom. Just, they didn't have word processors, and, and you know, they didn't have Microsoft Word. They could just write a document, so they just, they just had to sign it in blood. So, so Abram goes into... Deep sleep, deeper darkness. God tells um, the story of his offspring. They're going to go to Egypt for 400 years. They're not going to be here, but they're coming back. Don't worry. I will make this happen. And Abram is the lesser party. Does Abram walk through? No. God walks through, right? This smoking fire pot. I wish I could. I know all about that, but I don't have time to tell you. Um, I don't really know. I understand that, honestly. <laughs> But essentially what God is saying by Him walking through is saying, if you don't uphold your end of the bargain, this is what happens to me. And where do we see that? Calvary. On the cross. You didn't uphold your end of the bargain. My body's broken. My blood spilled out. So even here, friends, all nations of the earth will be blessed. God cuts the covenant and says, it's on me, Abram, and it will always be on me. I give you this land. Each had their own religious practices. All, there were people there living there already. They each have their religious practices. God's saying, but I own it. And I will assert myself over these other religions. It's my, it, I'm God. So, next week, generation, we see generations two and three. Isaac and his twins. 
We will spend most of our time with Isaac because the story of Abraham becomes Abraham when he gets circumcised. Abraham finally getting Isaac and then sacrificing him, being willing to sacrifice him, is a horrible and incredible story. To think of what a father must have had to go through. Anyway, please come. It's Labor Day. I want you out on your boat, but come here to uh, church first. The Lord bless you this week. God bless. Take care.